For those of you who are new to our congregation, my name is Rich. Welcome. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life. And if you're joining us from Facebook or newlife.nyc or YouTube, uh, a gift to worship with you and have you with us. I want to invite uh, two of our New Lifers, Pastor Shauna, as well as uh, Jeff, to come up here. Give it up for them as they come to the stage for a moment. Two weeks ago, we completed our second cohort of our School of Formation. Our School of Formation is the primary way that people grow in our values at New Life Fellowship Church, and we completed a cohort with 60 people, including New Lifers and pastors and leaders from around the country. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to hear from uh, Shauna and from Jeff, because some of you have approached me and are considering the School of Formation, and I wanted you to hear from them directly around how this uh, course, this school, impacted them over the last uh, eight months. And so, uh, Shauna, uh, Jeff, so good to have you with us. How did the School of Formation, eight months of journeying together with others, uh, what was the most impactful thing about this journey for you? Wow, there were so many impactful things for me and our family as we transitioned here. The School of Formation was an amazing grounding place, supportive place for me to grow, to learn the values of new life and of the kingdom, and to have a small group, a mentor group of people that were supporting. And last week we heard from Kurt Thompson, and he talked about how the antidote to shame is vulnerability in community. And so the School of Formation really provided that place of vulnerability and community to wrestle with our values. And not only does it push away shame, but it pushes us into who we're meant to be in Christ. And we're able to encourage one another in that. So it's really a beautiful experience. Yeah, I, I echo what Shauna said. Um, I think for me specifically, you know, I, I didn't grow up in the church, so I've, I feel like I've been well-formed by the world. So um, being a part of this experience and, and getting exposed to all this great teaching, and then also really, as Shauna was saying, these spaces to be vulnerable and really dig in and do that deep inner work on myself, uh, which is certainly ongoing. It's not like eight months and I'm checking out, but uh, it's, been a, it's been a really powerful, wonderful experience. So I'm yeah. grateful for that. One of the things that uh, we want to be clear about our school is that we, there's a fee to it, and new lifers get 50% off of what everyone else gets, and so er, over eight months, uh, the fee for eight months is $1,500, but new lifers get it for 50% off, and here's the question, because people have asked me, why do I got to pay for this? Why, why do you think it's important to just invest in your own spiritual journey to take $750 over eight months where you're going to get world-class teaching from experts around the country as well as connect with others, why would this be an important investment in their own lives? Yeah, it's absolutely a worthy investment, and many times we don't hesitate to invest in our physical health and nutrition and fitness, uh, going to the doctor, all those things, and this is a way for you to invest in your spiritual development and flourishing, not only for your impact for your development, but to impact your family of origin, to impact the spaces where you are every day in the world. And so it really is a worthy, valuable investment. Yeah, and I, I know for me, many, um, many of the teaching sessions I would come out of and I was just super excited, kind of just on the moon about, about what I heard and just to be in the company of all these great teachers and other people on the journey. The other thing I would say is is just um, the relevancy of the teaching. I feel like 
the world we live in, the age we live in, like what this course is doing is really preparing you to to speak into, to address, you know, and to consider all these these areas, both in the world that we're facing right now, but you know, also within yourself. So um, I found it extremely relevant. So yeah, I'll, I'll leave it with that. Awesome. Uh, let's give it up for Jeff and Shauna. Thank you. This third cohort has already opened, and it, the applications close on June 15th. And we've already always created Buffer at New Life so that if you can't financially afford, we, all, we'll offer scholarships and such, and so we're happy to do that. But more than anything, we want people to grow in following Jesus, and this is the most, uh, the primary way that we're trying to help people do that in our local context here at New Life. So if you have any questions, feel free to see me or Andres, who was up here earlier. He's our School of Formation Director. We would love to answer any questions that you might have. Okay, uh, we are continuing our sermon series entitled God and Our Bodies. We started it a couple of weeks ago. Uh, three weeks ago, I gave a big picture perspective on where we were going, addressing the many different layers about connecting our spirituality and our sexuality. And, uh, and so we began that, and then the week after that, Pastor Sharon got up here and preached a phenomenal message about our sexual brokenness, what it means to be wounded and to wound others, the various traumas that we experience. And then last week, Dr. Kurt Thompson, if you haven't watched any of these messages, they're available on YouTube or on our, uh, our podcast. All the sermons are up there, so if you want to c- catch up on that, feel free to do that. Uh, Dr. Thompson talked about shame. And the ways our shame impacts our sense of self, the way our shame impacts our sexuality, our view of God, our relationship to one another. The first few messages have been around the brokenness, the shadow side of our sexuality. And this week we're going to talk about what Jesus says about sexual desire uh, that goes off the rails. He talks about lust in Matthew chapter 5. And so Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse number 27, you can follow on the screen or follow in your Bible here the word of the Lord. Jesus says, you have heard it that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Happy Mother's Day, everyone. Let's pray. We're going to need it. Lord, thank you for the gift of Scripture and for the ways you long to meet us and surprise us. And so give us grace for this time, we pray in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. One of the things that we learn from Jesus is that God is not merely concerned with behavior modification, but God is really concerned about heart transformation. And this is the reason why God knows and Jesus knows and we know to one degree or another that we could adjust our behavior and not really experience heart transformation. That on the outside, things could look really good. 
but on the inside, things are actually really bad. And so over and over again in the Gospels, over and over again in the New Testament, over and over again through the teachings of Jesus, Jesus lets us know that God is after your heart, that God is after the stuff beneath the surface, that God is after the stuff that your neighbor can't see, the stuff that you often don't recognize in yourself. God wants to transform us deep beneath the surface of our lives. And that's what we find in Jesus' teachings today, what I just read. When Jesus teaches, he teaches the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. And one could argue that those three chapters serve as the most important set of teachings that Jesus offers throughout the entire New Testament. That if you want to know what it means to follow Jesus, read Matthew 5, read Matthew 6, read Matthew 7. If you want to know what life is like in the kingdom of God, take the words of Jesus seriously in the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to know the life that leads to wholeness, that leads towards flourishing, that leads towards your own healing and to be a gift to the world, read Matthew 5, read Matthew 6, read Matthew 7. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And yet what we have found in church culture And yet what we have found in our own individual lives, that we have related to these set of teachings, not as the Sermon on the Mount, but often as the suggestion on the Mount. That Jesus makes a few recommendations that if you can get to it, fine, but if you can't, he knows that you're really busy and you shouldn't really worry about it. And so we see it as the suggestion on the Mount or the aspiration on the Mount. That, yeah, strive for it, but listen, if you can't make it, it's all good. And as a matter of fact, what many people have viewed this set of teachings is as as follows. They view these teachings as a reminder that we cannot live up to what Jesus tells us to, so then we must trust in God. And so the logic is Jesus throws all this out before us so that to, to convince us we can't live in the way that God wants us to live. And so recognize that you're a sinner and trust in God to be justified by God. And I want to say that that's not the order that Jesus has us to go. Instead of it being we can't live this out, so trust God, what Jesus is inviting us into is to trust in God so that we can live it out. Trust God. The emphasis is actually on following Jesus and giving expression to what Jesus teaches us in this passage. The Sermon on the Mount serves in many ways as the New Testament version of the Ten Commandments. And Jesus borrows a lot of language from the Ten Commandments, but he goes deeper beneath the surface. These are the things that don't save you. Uh, Living out the Sermon on the Mount don't make you righteous before God. You're made righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ. You're made righteous through his death and his resurrection. But to belong to Jesus Christ means that we are called to live in a particular way. In the same way that the Ten Commandments don't save you. Remember, when the Ten Commandments were given to the people of God, they were already rescued from Egypt. And then God gave them the Ten Commandments. He didn't give them the Ten Commandments and say, live these things faithfully and then you'll be saved. He rescues them out of Egypt and then gives them Ten Commandments to let them know this is what free people look like. This is how free people live. And the same way Jesus is essentially saying, this is how free people live, focusing on his teachings. And what he does is he goes beneath the surface to help us understand the commandment or the longing or the teaching beneath the commandment. And what we find throughout this passage in particular, Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30, is Jesus addressing sexual desire. 
The sexual desire that often goes off the rails and what he has to tell us about it. And there's five things that I want you to know about this passage. There's lots that I could say here, but five important things as we think about integrating our spirituality and our sexuality. The first thing I want you to know is that Jesus calls us to confront the reality of our lust. He calls us to confront the reality of our lust. What is lust? Lust is what happens when our desires devour us. Or our desires are used to devour others. And so Jesus says, quoting the seventh commandment, you have heard that it was said that you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you. And that's an important line because Jesus repeats that phrase some four or five times in his teachings. You have heard it said, but I tell you. And whenever Jesus says, but I tell you, that's a good word for us in every generation. Because we have often have heard things said by someone, and Jesus wants to say, but I tell you. You've heard it said by culture, but I tell you. You've heard it said by religious people, but I tell you. You've heard it said by your family of origin, but I tell you. We all have received teachings from people that are often inconsistent with the way of Jesus and the kingdom of God. And so Jesus says, but I tell you. He says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery and at that point people who are listening and maybe people listening here might say I'm doing great here this is great I've never committed adultery as a matter of fact I've never been married before and so this has nothing to do with me whatsoever and many people in Jesus's day would probably hear that and go I'm doing great what else you got for me Jesus and Jesus but not so fast you've heard it was said do not commit adultery but I tell you that if you look at a woman lustfully, you have already committed adultery. Now, what Jesus is saying is that in his kingdom, we are to pay attention to our desires. We are to pay attention to what's happening beneath the surface. That we are to pay attention to our, our intentions and our thoughts and surrender all that under love and obedience to him. You shall not commit adultery, but I tell you. Now, when Jesus says, but I tell you whoever lusts, He's using the similar language that he just used a minute before when he talks about anger. And I want you to see the parallel. Right before this, Jesus says, you have heard it said, don't commit murder. And everybody says, this is great. I've never shot anyone. I've never killed anyone. Then he goes, but I tell you, wait a second. If you are angry with your brother, you have already committed murder in your heart. Now, when Jesus says that word Anger, the Greek word for that is orgizomenos, orgizomenos, all right? Say that with me. Orgizomenos, you're Greek scholars, this is wonderful. And so orgizomenos is this present tense word where you're not just angry in a fleeting moment, you are allowing that anger to corrode your soul. Have you ever been so angry with someone that that anger leads to resentment? That just the mention of their name. And your, you know, your, your, your skin starts crawling. You want to destroy them. Jesus says there comes a point in our lives that if we're not careful, that our anger against someone can consume us. It's the present tense. It's not angry in a moment. It's angry for a lifetime. And Jesus says that kind of anger will destroy you. He uses the same present tense word when he talks about lust. Because what lust is, is not just a passing attraction. It is the deliberate harboring of desire for an illicit relationship. 
at the core of what Jesus is getting at in our contemporary age is the word using. Using. What is lust? Lust is at its core an act of using. Using another for the sake of one's sensual and sexual gratification. It is not a life of communion. It's a life of consumption. It's not a life of communion. It's a life of using, where others now become an object to get a particular desire satisfied that we long to have. And so to commit adultery in the heart, what Jesus is saying, is to make another person the object for your consumption. At the core of it, lust is about creating relationships in our head for the sake of gratifying whatever desire that we believe we deserve to have. And when we look at our culture as a whole, we see that this is often the default mode of our culture. Think about the impact that pornography has in our world. I want to show you some statistics here. Porn sites receive more regular traffic than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined each month. Think about that for a moment. 35% of all internet downloads are porn-related. 34% of internet users have been exposed to unwanted porn via ads, pop-ups, etc. People who admit to having extramarital affairs were over 300% more likely to admit consuming porn than those who have never had an affair, according to a 2004 study. And at least 30% of all data transferred across the internet is porn-related. This is the sad reality of our world, and it's only getting more complicated as technology advances. There was an article that I read from Canadian researchers uh, around called the journal Sexual and Relationship Therapy, where they were saying that people would prefer to have loving relationships. There's coming a day, and that day's probably already, where people would love to have loving relationships with robots instead of actual human beings. This is not Star Wars. This is not Star Trek. This is our reality. And one quote said it this way. It said, it is safe to say that the era of immersive virtual sex has arrived. That all these as these technologies advance, their adoption will grow and many people will, become, will come to identify themselves as digisexuals, people whose primary sexual identity comes through the use of technology. Most people will find that their experiences with this technology become integral to their sexual identity and some will prefer them than to, than to direct sexual interactions with humans. Now this is... When Jesus was saying these words, they did not have any kind of imagination for this, but the core of the issue remains the same. That there's something deep within the human heart that uses as opposed to communion, that sees others as objects and not as subjects. And when consumption replaces communion, our souls are corrupted. When consumption replaces communion, our souls are are corrupted. That's the first thing that Jesus wants us to see. He wants us to confront the reality of lust. The second thing that I want you to see is that Jesus primarily addresses men. Not exclusively, but Jesus in this text here primarily addresses men. And this was quite a thing to do because when Jesus was 
preaching and and talking about the kingdom of God, he did it in a male-dominated society. He did it in a patriarchal society, and yet Jesus would subvert the ways of that society in some remarkable ways. For example, Jesus would receive women to be his disciples, which rabbis never did. Jesus would, 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 would allow, he would send women in the power of the Holy Spirit to bear witness to the gospel. As a matter of fact, the first people to preach the good news that Jesus was alive were women. Praise God for that. We praise God for these women here. Amen. The first, Jesus sends them in the power of the Holy Spirit. Women. Jesus subverted the ways that women were seen in that society, and he does the same today. This passage speaks primarily to men. Because for thousands of years, women have been seen as an object for a man's satisfaction. Women have been seen primarily as a means, as property. And women, as a result, have been blamed for male lust. The Pharisees, the religious leaders in that day, believed that eliminating male lust, that the key to eliminating male lust was to avoid all interactions with women. That even if it meant if you saw a woman and you, you would just you know, close your eyes and walk into a wall, that would be better than to have close proximity to women. And so women, from ancient times to today, are often blamed for male lust. Instead of taking responsibility of our own hearts, the issue is often what's happening on the outside. I remember I was taking, a, at our staff here, we take a, a sexual harassment training every single year. And every single year I get to this point of the, of the presentation that it, it makes me chuckle a little bit because it names the, some true reality here. It says, men, do not avoid working with women because you are afraid of sexual harassment complaints. To avoid sexual harassment complaints, do not sexually harass people. <laughs> I know we're getting deep here, people. I, I know we're getting deep here. To avoid sexual harassment, do not sexually harass. I mean, this is deep revelation. I know. What Jesus is saying is men must take ownership of what's coming out of our hearts. Jesus is saying the problem is not out there. The problem is in here. And when this is not the case, what happens is women are often blamed. But let's be honest, friends. If a person has lust in his heart, I'm talking directly to men at this point, it doesn't matter what a woman is wearing. A woman could be covered from head to toe with her only her eyebrows showing. If you're filled with lust, you go, look at those eyebrows, look at those eyebrows. I mean, that's what happens. And so the issue is not out there. Amen. The issue is in here. Jesus addresses the primary issue, and it is an issue of the heart. Now, I want to note that just because Jesus primarily addresses men doesn't mean he only addresses men. He speaks to men primarily, but you could argue not exclusively. 
Because there are plenty of ways in which women are subjected as well to the power of lust, to the sin of creating relationships in your head. And women are increasingly becoming addicted to pornography and fantasy novels and all the rest. And this is a danger for everyone to see others as objects, not as subjects. And so Jesus, however, makes it plain to address men, and we need to pay attention to that. The third thing that I want you to see in this passage is that this verse is not about sexual repression. Sexual repression. The church, sadly, is often known for sexual repression. That we see our longings, all of our longings as bad, and so we must deny any longing that we have in the name of Jesus. And what often happens is the places that are often marked by most repression are the places that actually you see lots of scandals coming out of it. Have you ever noticed that the people who preach most against a particular issue it's not surprising that the particular issue that they've been preaching against actually becomes the thing that was dominating their lives. And so you go, how could that be? Well, that's the only thing they've talked about. It's a culture often of repression, and Jesus is not talking about a life of repression. He's not talking about a life that denies our humanity. And yet as Christians... What often happens is we are often embarrassed about our sexual desires. But God gave us sexual desire. To, to be sexual is not the opposite of being holy. Come on, somebody. <laughs> what often happens is the church sees any desire as lust. And then we go down a really bad road. And it's not the case. For example, it's not lust if you find someone attractive. If you go, wow, that's a great-looking guy right there. Wow, that's a beautiful woman right there. It's not a sin if you find someone attractive. It's, it's not lust if you have a desire for sexual intimacy. It's not lust if someone is sexually aroused without any conscious decision to be so. It's not lust if you experience sexual temptation. Do you know what these things are called? These things are called being a human being. That's what it is. Being a human being. And it's important to say that because there's so much shame in the church. Because we do not know what to do with our desires. And what Jesus invites us to is not to repress our desires but in his name, invite God to reorder our desires. This is why we need the season of Lent, because the season of Lent reminds us that we are not to be driven by our appetites. We are not to be driven by our desires, that life is not simply about fulfilling the needs that I have. And so for a season, look into the wisdom of the church. Look at the wisdom of the church. For a season, the church says we have to remind ourselves that we are to be ordered by God, Led by God and not led by our appetites. Led by God and not led by our desires. Led by God. And, what so, and so the season of Lent says you cannot be driven by your desires in such a way that's going to lead to ultimate fulfillment. We are to be led by the Spirit of God and boundary, appropriately so, reorder our desires. But at the core of what Jesus is saying is not about sexual repression. It's about, in his name, learning to reorder our desires. The fourth thing I want you to see 
And every one of these points is worth lots of reflection here. But Jesus gives dramatic language to deal with lust. Look what he says. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Now, just to be clear, because I know you didn't sign any uh, uh, liability things here, Jesus is not talking literally here, okay? And so uh, we'd be all blind and, and, and without any arms here if this was the case. Jesus is using extreme language because he knows the ways that lust can consume us and the ways that lust can consume and damage relationships. And so he's using exaggerated language. He's not recommending a literal amputation, but he's trying to get us to see the inherent danger of allowing our desires to do whatever our desires want us to do. And so he says, essentially, that, there are, that we have to boundary our desires appropriately. I think about what the New Testament theologian Dale Bruner said. He said, we may feel we are being robbed of harmless pleasures and of personal independence when we are told to stop staring, cease lusting, and to cut out offending practices. But Jesus says that it is infinitely better to go limping into heaven than to go uh, leaping into hell. Limping into heaven than leaping into hell. And I think this is a good word for us. Jesus is actually really intense with the language that he uses. And I want to suggest to you that there is an external component to this, but we dare not miss the internal component to this. Because here's the temptation that we have. The temptation is we have some particular struggle in our lives that we cannot get in control of. Therefore, what we need is to create external boundaries. And so you have a particular addiction, and you say to yourself, you know what, I just got to get rid of the computer. If I just got rid of the computer, things would be great. And so you throw the laptop out of the window. And then you find yourself at a library. And realize, I should have saved that laptop. I, I mean, this is, why? Because we're dealing with externals. And there is a wisdom for creating appropriate boundaries. There is a wisdom to allowing yourself to be honest with others about your particular struggles. There is a wisdom about saying, I need to not go in that direction. But here's what I know to be true about many of us. We can focus so much on the externals and not pay attention to what's going on in our hearts. And as a result of that, we're going to find ourselves in an endless cycle over and over and over again. This is the nature of addiction. When someone is addicted to something, drugs, food, sex, work, whatever it is, that addiction, in many ways, is the person's strategy to try to soothe their own pain. Anyone who's wrestling with an addiction, this is a strategy to soothe pain. So whenever I'm with someone and I'm counseling someone who has a particular addiction, my pastoral word to them is not create all the boundaries, stop doing those things, willpower, willpower, willpower. The deeper issue is there's so much woundedness in you and you've been trying to soothe yourself. Listen, I know what I'm talking about. I've had uncles 
who have been addicted to drugs and alcohol who have died in their 40s and 50s with so much pain in their lives. And how did they try to soothe themselves? Through liquor, through drugs. It wasn't that they, they were, they were, these were people who had so much pain and were trying to soothe themselves. Which is why whenever I meet with someone who's addicted, my first words to them are this. Congratulations. You have learned how to survive. But this does not go deep enough. What you've used to survive is only going to get you in more bondage. But you're still here. May we be a community that recognizes deep down our addictions, our attempt to be soothed, to find healing, to find what our souls desperately long for. And so on one end, yes, we must create these boundaries and establish these boundaries, but external boundaries without paying attention to what's actually going on in our souls is going to lead us in an endless cycle. Which is why the sooner we can help people identify their woundedness, their brokenness, their pain, their trauma, and to give them appropriate spaces for that, what begins to happen is the addictions begin to wear off because you're getting to the root of the problem. We're no longer symptomatic anymore. And so what Jesus is getting at is, yes, appropriately, let's create boundaries, but let's not fail to do the work that we need to do deep down in our souls. Lastly, what is Jesus getting at here? And this is good news for us. When Jesus says this, I believe he's talking about a larger theme in the scriptures. And Jesus recognizes that our lust damages our lives, our relationships, and the world, and yet God still loves us. Praise the Lord. In the Old Testament, the primary, you could argue, metaphor for rebellion is adultery. Over and over again, that word comes up as the people of God are in rebellion. God says, you are my spouse. I have married you. But over and over again, you go after other gods. Over and over again, you go after idols. Over and over again, you turn your back against me and you move in the other direction. But over and over again, throughout the Hebrew scriptures, beyond, beyond the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we learn something about God. That even though we might turn our backs on God, God's love remains steadfast. This is the remarkable thing about the grace of God. God's love. And in the, in the, in the Hebrew scriptures, there's a word called chesed. It's, it means God's covenant loyalty. God's steadfast love for you. And this is good news for you who are struggling. This is good news for you that are, who are caught up in a cycle. This is good news for you who might be living your life, turning away from God. No matter how far you turn away from God, God continues to pursue you with love. This is the good news of God's grace. This is the story of Christianity, of God's steadfast love to you. Listen, Christianity is not about our relentless and faithful pursuit of God. That's not the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is about God's relentless, steadfast pursuit of you. You do your own thing, God says, I'm still coming. You deny God, God says, I'm still coming. You cannot get away from the love of God. This is what Jesus shows us. And so what we are invited into is to get a revelation of God's covenant loyalty. 
God's steadfast faithfulness. His mercies are new every single morning. Aren't you glad for that? I love that passage of scripture. Every, his love, his mercies, his compassions fail not. They are new every single morning. Every single morning, you get a new dash and stash of God's faithfulness. Every single morning, a fresh outpouring of God's mercy. Every single morning, a new dose of God's compassion over your life. What scripture shows us over and over again is even when we are not loyal to God, God remains loyal to us and invites us to turn to us. This is what Paul gets at in the book of Romans when Paul says that it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. It is not our repentance that leads to the kindness of God. Get that deep down in your soul. It's not your repent. You don't repent and then receive God's kindness. God is always kind to you. God is always kind to me. It is God's kindness that leads to repentance. And what does Jesus invite us into? He invites us into a life with God where we are not now seeing God as someone to be used but someone to commune with. And that communion with God is to spill over into our relationships with one another, where we no longer see each other as objects, but as subjects, as image bearers of God. And every single day, we are reminded of God's covenant loyalty to us and the invitation that God has for us to be loyal and faithful in the way we relate to one another. And friends, this does not happen in our own willpower. This does not happen in our own strength. We need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to do this. But know this, we can live in this reality. We can live in this new age that Jesus Christ has inaugurated in his coming. We can live in his kingdom and under his rule. And you know what? The world is desperate for this kind of community. The, Lord, the, the world is desperate for this model. The world is desperate for this example. And in the name of Jesus, we can be the people who begin to relate to others, not in ways that are marked by objectification, but in ways that are marked by communion. May God give us and pour out his grace in us that we may be a countercultural example of what can happen when Jesus Christ gets a hold of a people. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we confess that we have often allowed our desires to devour us. We've allowed our desires to lead the way in us devouring others, seeing others as objects, not subjects, seeing others as what we can get from them, not as image bearers who deserve love and compassion and be treated with integrity and respect. And Lord, this message is so countercultural for a world that is led by all kinds of desires. 
But today, Jesus, may you help us reorder our desires in such a way that brings glory to your name. Teach us to identify what's happening in our hearts, that we would submit to your rule, to your reign, because it is your rule, your reign, that leads to the kind of joy and peace that we long for. And so, Lord, do something in our hearts. Lead us and guide us in the way we should go. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's all stand and let's sing in response today. From the inside of me, may you
that the church is to be a place where people encounter the power of the risen Jesus. And when I think about some of those statistics I read and all the other ways that we find ourselves in shackles, the church is to be a place where you find healing, deliverance, wholeness. And there's something about worship, there's something about prayer that opens us ourselves, opens up our lives to a unique anointing from the Holy Spirit. There have been times when I've been in the presence of God singing, and I can just feel the shackles coming off of me. There have been times where I've been worshiping and praying, and I realize that, wow, the Lord is, is starting to set me free. And at New Life, we believe that transformation happens in so many different ways. Transformation happens in our small group context as we're having honest conversations. Transformation happens when you're in a room with your therapist, with your spiritual director. Transformation happens as we are alone in contemplative prayer. Transformation happens when we're gathered as the people of God, lifting our voices before God. And listen, in a room this size, you watching online, you, listen, I've, I've been a human being too long. I've had my own struggles too long. I've been a pastor too long to not believe that there's lots of people in this room watching online that long to be free from something. And you've been trying over and over, going through the same cycle year after year after year. Wondering, will I ever be set free? Will I ever let loose of this shame? Will I ever be out of these shackles? And friends, I want to let you know there is transformation available in Jesus Christ. There is freedom available in Jesus Christ. There's healing available in Jesus Christ. And so I want you to name what, what is going on in you right now. And we're going to sing it just one more time through. And, and may that song be a cry for God's healing. And as I do that, I want to invite our prayer team to come to my right. And whether you sing 
whether you begin to come forward just to receive prayer, we usually invite people to come forward after uh, our benediction. But if God leads you, feel free to come up for prayer. Because I believe that there are moments in worship where God unleashes an anointing to set the captives free. And so let's sing with all of our stuff, all the ways that we are still not totally free. And may this be our heart's desire that all I want is for you to be glorified, you to be lifted high. And as we give our attention to Jesus, may Jesus begin to set us free. Let's sing that together.
There's a few ways I want to invite you to respond to today's message. We have our prayer team to my right. And maybe you came in here and maybe the message has zeroed in on some area of your life. Or maybe there's just something going on that's unrelated to this message that you just need prayer for. I recognize that human relationships can get very difficult. And maybe you came in here as a married couple, struggling. And maybe you've been struggling in isolation. If God leads you together as a couple, we want to pray for you. May the church be the place where marriages get whole, where families are restored, where relationships are mended, where people learn to confess and to forgive. And this is an ongoing journey, but it has to start somewhere. Maybe as a married couple today, you came in and you're just struggling. We want to pray for you. Also want to let you know on, on Tuesday, we're having a, a conversation. We're gathering our church on Zoom to talk through so much of the things that we're learning on Sundays. And if you need a space to be in conversation with others, uh, you can register on our website. It's every other week, biweekly on Zoom uh, at, um, I believe, at 7 p.m., and so go on our way. We want to just create spaces for our church to have conversations about some very real things. And so feel free to join us on Zoom on Tuesdays. Also, we want to resource you with this journal that our community life team has created. Some of you often wonder, what do I do with what I'm learning? How do I chew on it some more? What does it mean for me to wrestle with God in prayer? And our pastoral team has created this wonderful resource and guide for you so that you don't have to just leave from this place and never really pay attention to what God is inviting us as a community to pay attention to. And so we have a journaling guide and resources available if you go on our website. Uh, take some time this week. Carve out 30 minutes sometime this week to pay attention to what God is doing. And you go, 30 minutes, Pastor Rich? I'll tell you, sometimes we're on Facebook for two hours and not even recognizing it's been two hours. And so it's not a matter of where can I find the time? Come on, testify somebody. It's, it's you have the time and I have the time. And we want to help you take the next step in wrestling with what God is doing. Lastly, before I bless you, we're talking about a lot of things throughout this 10-week series. And one of the realities is the church must have better conversations about what it means to be in conversation with those who find themselves in the LGBTQ community. And so in a week and a half, we have Dr. Wesley Hills, a New Testament scholar, who's going to be with us on Wednesday, uh, the 24th, from 6 to 9. And I want to invite you to come. Uh, many of us have... In our church, people who find themselves in the LGBTQ community that we want to love and be in relationship with. Some of you have friends and families, and you're wondering, how do I navigate through the world of increasing, that's rapidly changing? What do I do? And we want to have these conversations. Why? Because the conversations are happening everywhere. And if they're not happening in the church, that's really a miss in terms of our discipleship. And so I want to invite you to join. You can, uh, I believe there's a registration link or something. We just want to get a good sense of who's joining us, but that's a week and a half from now 
we would love to have you with us is going to be right here at the church. Lastly, it's this. I said last, but I'm a preacher, so there's lastly, it's this. In closing, I usually give one closing per week this year. I'm giving two this time here. If you've never said yes to Jesus Christ, listen, I have conversations with people in the lobby after service that you're just coming in, you're exploring Christianity. And maybe today you're watching online, you're in this room here, and you have been, you have been your own king, your own queen. You said, my desires, my kingdom come, my will be done. And it has not led you to the kind of joy and life and peace that you're longing for. And yet I want to give you an invitation to allow Jesus to transform your life. If you'd like to say yes to Jesus or you're going, what does that even mean? If you want to learn about what it means to take the next step in following Jesus, you can come to our prayer team. You can talk to one of our pastors at the end of the service downstairs. You can scan that QR code. If you're wanting to get baptized and take the next step of your own discipleship, you can do that as well. Or you can go to newlife.nyc, next step. And we want to help you follow Jesus because it's in his life and in his love that you're going to truly find what your soul is longing for. And so let us serve you along those lines. Amen. Let me invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. In the shower room downstairs, there's this Latino Hispanic fellowship, so feel free to go downstairs. I hear there's food. Uh, and so empanadas and all the rest. And so uh, don't forget to join there. But with your hands and your hearts in a posture of receiving, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you, fill you with peace. And may you walk out of this building and out of this online gathering in the power of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness the freedom that comes in Jesus' name. I bless you all in the strong, in the beautiful, in the healing name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you all. Amen.